Section 11 of The Life of Abraham Lincoln, Volume 2, by Ida Tarbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 27, Lincoln and the Soldiers, Part 2. In the early days of the war, Washington was so poorly supplied with hospitals that after the first battle of Bull Run, churches, dwellings, and government buildings were seized to place the wounded in, and there were so few nurses that the people of Washington had to be called upon. Very rapidly, little settlements of board barracks or of white army tents multiplied in the open spaces in and around the town, quarters for the sick and wounded. Nurses poured in from the north. Organizations for relief multiplied. By the end of 1862, Mr. Lincoln could scarcely drive or walk in any direction about Washington without passing a hospital. Even in going to his summer cottage at the soldier's home, the president did not escape the sight of the wounded. The rolling hillside was dotted with white hospital tents during the entire war. In many places, the tents were placed close to the road so as to get more air, the grounds being more thickly wooded than they are now. As he drove home after a harrowing day in the White House, the president frequently looked from his carriage upon the very beds of wounded soldiers. Every member of the government, whether he would or not, was obliged to give some attention to this side of the war. It became a regular feature of a congressman's life in those days to spend every Saturday or Sunday afternoon in the hospitals, visiting the wounded men from his district. He wrote their letters, brought them news, saw to their wants. If he had not done it, his constituents would have disposed of him in short order. In 1862, Mr. Lincoln called Dr. D. Willard Bliss from the field to Washington to aid in organizing a more perfect system of general hospitals in and about the city. One result of Dr. Bliss's coming was the building of Armory Square Hospital, one of the best-conducted institutions of the Civil War. Lincoln gave his personal attention to the building of Armory Square, and for a long time met Dr. Bliss twice each week to consider the ingenious appliances which the latter devised to aid in caring for and treating the wounded. Some of these appliances the president paid for out of his own pocket. Not infrequently he had some suggestion to make for the comfort of the place. It was due to him that Armory Square became a bower of vine and bloom in the summer. Why don't you plant flower seeds? he asked Dr. Bliss one day. The doctor said he would if he had seeds. I'll order them for you from the agricultural department, replied the president, and sure enough he did, and thereafter, all through the season, each of the long barracks had its own flower bed and vines. The president himself visited the hospitals as often as he could, visits never forgotten by the men to whom he spoke as he passed up and down the wards, shaking hands here, giving a cheering word there, making jocular comments everywhere. There are men still living who tell of a little scene they witnessed at Armory Square in 1863. A soldier of the 140th Regiment, Pennsylvania Volunteers, had been wounded in the shoulder at the Battle of Chancellorsville and taken to Washington. One day, as he was becoming convalescent, a whisper ran down the long rows of cots that the president was in the building and would soon pass by. Instantly, every boy in blue who was able arose, stood erect, hands to the side, ready to salute his commander-in-chief. The Pennsylvanian stood six feet seven inches in his stockings. Lincoln was six feet four. 
as the president approached this giant towering above him he stopped in amazement and casting his eyes from head to foot and from foot to head as if contemplating the immense distance from one extremity to the other he stood for a moment speechless at length extending his hand he exclaimed hello comrade do you know when your feet get cold lincoln rarely forgot a patient whom he saw a second time and to stubborn cases that remained month to month he gave particular attention there was in armory square hospital for a long time a boy known as little johnny he was hopelessly crippled doomed to death but cheerful and a general favorite lincoln never failed to stop at little johnny's cot when he went to armory square and he frequently sent him fruit and flowers and a friendly message through mrs lincoln of all of the incidents told of lincoln's hospital visits there is nothing more characteristic better worth preservation than the one following preserved by dr jerome walker of brooklyn just one week before his assassination president lincoln visited the army of potomac at city point virginia and carefully examined the hospital arrangements of the ninth sixth fifth second and sixteenth corps hospitals and of the engineer corps there stationed at that time i was an agent of the united states sanitary commission attached to the ninth corps hospital though a boy of nineteen years to me was assigned the duty of escorting the president through our department of the hospital system the reader can imagine the pride with which i fulfilled the duty and as we went from tent to tent i could not but note his gentleness his friendly greetings to the sick and wounded his quiet humor as he drew comparisons between himself and the very tall and very short men with whom he came in contact and his genuine interest in the welfare of the soldiers finally after visiting the wards occupied by our invalid and convalescing soldiers we came to three wards occupied by sick and wounded southern prisoners with a feeling of patriotic duty i said mr president you won't want to go in there they are only rebels i will never forget how he stopped and gently laid his large hand upon my shoulder and quietly answered you mean confederates and i have meant confederates ever since there was nothing left for me to do after the president's remark but to go with him through these three wards and i could not see but that he was just as kind his handshakings just as hearty his interest just as real for the welfare of the men as he was among our own soldiers as we returned to headquarters the president urged upon me the importance of caring for them as faithfully as i should for our own sick and wounded when i visited next day these three wards the southern officers and soldiers were full of praise for abe lincoln as they called him and when a week afterwards the news came of the assassination there was no truer sorrow nor greater indignation anywhere than was shown by these same confederates one great cause of sorrow to lincoln throughout the war was the necessity of punishing soldiers not only did the men commit all the crimes common to society like robbery and murder they were guilty of others peculiar to military organization and war such as desertion sleeping on post disobedience to orders bounty jumping giving information to the enemy as the army grew larger desertion became so common and so disastrous to efficiency that it had to be treated with great severity 
Lincoln seems to have had his attention first called to it seriously when he visited McClellan's army in July, 1862, for he wrote McClellan, July 13th, My dear sir, I am told that over 160,000 men have gone into your army on the peninsula. When I was with you the other day, we made out 86,500 remaining, leaving 73,500 to be accounted for. I believe 23,500 will cover all the killed, wounded, and missing in all your battles and skirmishes, leaving 50,000 who have left otherwise. Not more than 5,000 of these have died, leaving 45,000 of your army still alive and not with it. I believe half or two-thirds of them are fit for duty today. Have you any more perfect knowledge of this than I have? If I am right, and you had these men with you, you could go into Richmond in the next three days. How can they be got to you, and how can they be prevented from getting away in such numbers for the future? A. Lincoln About the same time, Buell reported 14,000 absentees from his army. In the winter of 1862 and 1863, it grew worse. General Hooker says that when he took charge of the Army of the Potomac in January 1863, the desertions were at the rate of 200 a day. I caused a return to be made of the absentees of the Army, he continues, and found the number to be 2,922 commissioned officers and 81,964 non-commissioned officers and privates. These were scattered all over the country, and the majority were absent from causes unknown. When the Bureau of the Provost Marshal was established in March 1863, finding and punishing deserters became one of its duties. Much of the difficulty was due to the methods of recruiting. To stimulate volunteering for long periods, the government began in 1861 to offer bounties. The bounties offered by the government were never large, however, and were paid in installments, so that no great evil resulted from them. But later, when the quota of each state and district was fixed and the draft instituted, state and local bounties were added to those of the government. In some places, the bounties offered aggregated $1,500, a large part of which was paid on enlistment. Immediately, a new class of military criminals sprang up, bounty jumpers, men who enlisted, drew the bounty, deserted, and re-enlisted at some other point. The law allowed men who had been drafted to send substitutes, and a new class of speculators, known as substitute brokers, appeared. They did a thriving business in procuring substitutes for drafted men who, for one reason or another, did not want to go into the war. These recruits were frequently of a very poor class, and a large percentage of them took the first chance to desert. It is said that out of 625 recruits sent to reinforce one regiment, over 40% deserted on the way. In the general report of the Provost Marshal General, made at the close of the war, the aggregate deserting was given at 201,397. The result of all this was that the severest penalties were enforced for desertion. The president never ceased to abhor the death penalty for this offense. While he had as little sympathy as Stanton himself with the frauds practiced, and never commuted the sentence of a bounty jumper as far as I have been able to discover, over the great number of sentences he hesitated. 
he seemed to see what others ignored, the causes which were behind. Many and many a man deserted in the winter of 1862-1863 because of the Emancipation Proclamation. He did not believe the President had the right to issue it, and he refused to fight. Lincoln knew, too, that the Copperhead agitation in the North reached the army, and that hundreds of men were being urged by parents and friends hostile to the administration to desert. His indignation never was against the boy who yielded to this influence. "'Must I shoot a simple-minded soldier boy who deserts?' he said, "'while I must not touch a hair of a wily agitator who induces him to desert?' This is none the less injurious when affected by getting a father or brother or friend into a public meeting and there working upon his feelings until he is persuaded to write the soldier boy that he is fighting in a bad cause for a wicked administration of a contemptible government, too weak to arrest and punish him if he shall desert. I think that in such a case, to silence the agitator and save the boy is not only constitutional, but withal a great mercy. Another cause he never forgot was that mortal homesickness, which so often ate the very heart out of a boy away from home for the first time. It filled many a hospital cot in the Civil War, and shriveled the nerves and sapped the courage, until men forgot everything but home, and fled. Lincoln seemed to see in a flash the whole army history of these cases. The boy enlisting, in the thrill of perhaps his first great passion, his triumphal march to the field, the long, hard months of seasoning, the deadly longing for home overtaking him, a chance to desert taken, the capture. He could not condemn such a boy to death. The time Lincoln gave to listening to the intercessions of friends in behalf of condemned deserters, the extent of his clemency, is graphically shown in the manuscript records of the War Department, which refer to prisoners of war. Scores of telegrams are filed there, written out by Lincoln himself, inquiring into the reasons for an execution, or suspending it entirely. These telegrams, which have never been published, furnish the documentary proof if any is wanted, of the man's great heart, his entire willingness to give himself infinite trouble to prevent an injustice or to soften a sorrow. Suspend execution and forward record for examination was his usual formula for telegrams of this nature. The record would be sent, but after it was in his hands, he would defer its examination from week to week. Often he telegraphed, Suspend execution of death sentence until further orders. But that does not pardon my boy, said a father to him once. My dear man, said the president, laying his hand on his shoulder, do you suppose I will ever give orders for your boy's execution? In sending these orders for suspension of execution, the president frequently went himself personally to the telegraph office and watched the operator send them, so afraid was he that they might not be forwarded in time. To dozens of the orders sent over from the White House by a messenger is attached a little note signed by Mr. Lincoln, or by one of his secretaries, and directed to Major Eckert, the chief of the office. Major Eckert, please send above dispatch, or, will you please hurry off the above? Tomorrow is the day of execution. Not infrequently he repeated a telegram, or sent a trailer after it inquiring, 
Did you receive my dispatch suspending sentence of blank? Difficulty in tracing a prisoner or in identifying him sometimes arose. The president only took additional pains. The following telegrams are to the point. Executive Mansion, Washington, D.C., November 20th, 1863. Major General Meade, Army of Potomac. If there is a man by the name of K., under sentence to be shot, please suspend execution till further order and send record. A. Lincoln. Executive Mansion, Washington, D.C., November 20th, 1863. Major General Meade, Army of Potomac. An intelligent woman in deep distress called this morning, saying her husband, a lieutenant in the Army of the Potomac, was to be shot next Monday for desertion, and putting a letter in my hand, upon which I relied for particulars, she left without mentioning a name or other particular by which to identify the case. On opening the letter, I found it equally vague, having nothing to identify it, except her own signature, which seems to be Mrs. A. S. K., I could not again find her. If you have a case which you think is probably the one intended, please apply my dispatch of this morning to it. A. Lincoln. In another case, where the whereabouts of a man who had been condemned were unknown, Lincoln telegraphed himself to four different military commanders, ordering suspension of the man's sentence. The execution of very young soldiers was always hateful to him. I am unwilling for any boy under 18 to be shot, he telegraphed Meade in reference to one prisoner, and in suspending another sentence he gave as an excuse. His mother says he is but 17. This boy he afterward pardoned on account of his tender age. If a reason for pardoning was not evident, he was willing to see if one could not be found. S.W., private in blank, writes that he is to be shot for desertion on the sixth instant. His own story is rather a bad one, and yet he tells it so frankly that I am somewhat interested in him. Has he been a good soldier except the desertion? About how old is he? A. Lincoln. Some of the deserters came very close to his own life. The son of more than one old friend was condemned for a military offense in the war, and in the telegrams is recorded Lincoln's treatment of these trying cases. In one of them, the boy had enlisted in the Southern Army and had been taken a prisoner. Please send him to me by an officer, the president telegraphed the military commander, having him in charge. Four days later, he telegraphed to the boy's father, Your son, blank, has just left me with my order to the Secretary of War to administer to him the oath of allegiance, discharge him, and send him to you. In another case, where the son of a friend was under trial for desertion, Lincoln kept himself informed of the trial, telegraphing to the general in charge. He is the son of so close a friend that I must not let him be executed. And yet... In spite of the evident reluctance which every telegram shows to allowing the execution of a death sentence, there are many which prove that, unless he had what he considered a good reason for suspending a sentence, he would not do it. The following telegrams are illustrative. Executive Mansion, Washington, D.C., November 23, 1863. E.P. Evans, West Union, Adams County, Ohio. Yours to Governor Chase in behalf of J.A.W. is before me. Can there be a worse case than to desert and the letters persuading others to desert? 
i cannot interpose without a better showing than you make when did he desert when did he write the letters a lincoln in this case sentence was later suspended until further orders executive mansion washington d c april twenty first eighteen sixty four major general dix new york yesterday i was induced to telegraph the officer in military command at fort warren boston harbor massachusetts suspending the execution of c c to be executed to-morrow for desertion just now on reading your order in the case i telegraphed the same order withdrawing the suspension and leaving the case entirely with you the man's friends are pressing me but i refer them to you intending to take no further action myself a lincoln war department washington city april twenty fifth eighteen sixty four major general meade army of potomac a mr corby brought you a note from me at the foot of a petition i believe in the case of d to be executed to-day the record has been examined here and it shows too strong a case for a pardon or commutation unless there is something in the poor man's favor outside of the record which you on the ground may know but i do not my note to you only means that if you know of any such thing rendering a suspension of the execution proper on your own judgment you are at liberty to suspend it otherwise i do not interfere a lincoln it is curious to note how the president found time to attend to these cases even on the most anxious days of his administration on the very day on which he telegraphed to james g blaine in response to the latter's announcement that maine had gone to the union on behalf of the union thanks to maine thanks to you personally for sending the news he sent two telegrams suspending sentences such telegrams were sent on days of great battles in the midst of victory in the despair of defeat whatever he was doing the fate of the sentenced soldier was on his heart on friday which was usually chosen as execution day he was often heard to say they are shooting a boy at blank to-day i hope i have not done wrong to allow it in spite of his frequent interference there were two hundred sixty seven men executed by the united states military authorities during the civil war of these one hundred forty one were executed for desertion and eight for desertion coupled with some other crime such as murder after those for desertion the largest number of executions were for murder sixty-seven in all as to the manner of the executions one hundred and eighty-seven were shot seventy-nine hung and in one case the offender was sent out of the world by some unknown way incidents and documents like those already given showing the care and sympathy president lincoln felt for the common soldier might be multiplied indefinitely nothing that concerned the life of the men in the line was foreign to him the man might have shown cowardice the president only said i never felt sure but i might drop my gun and run away if i found myself in line of battle the man might be poor and friendless if he has no friends i'll be his friend lincoln said the man might have deserted suspend execution send me his record was the president's order he was not only the commander-in-chief of all the armies of the united states he was the father of the army and never did a man better deserve a title than did he the one the soldiers gave him father abraham End of section eleven